This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, Nutrisource Pet Foods, and by Chief Upland. I think I, I think my voice actually cracked. I'm going to start over. It this did. episode of this episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, Nutrisource Pet Foods, and by Chief Upland. Today, Nate Akey joins the show. Nate's journey has taken him from the Midwest to America's Wild West in search of incredible hunting adventures and photos worthy of magazine covers. We'll find out what drives Nate to chase his dream, as well as learn what it takes to make a career in the hunting industry and bag a few wild birds along the way. Nutrisource Pet Foods just launched a new product that can give our active hunting dogs a big boost when they need it most. It's called Kampucha. Nutrisource Kampucha, inspired, of course, by kombucha, is a savory, meaty bone broth topper that's packed with activated postbiotics from a fermentation product that thrives in the gut to promote a healthy gut ecosystem for digestion support. That's a mouthful. But what it means for us bird dog owners is that we now have a healthy topper to pour over our dog's food if they're ever stressed or won't eat while on a long hunting trip. Kampucha is offered in three flavors, turkey, beef, and chicken, and comes in a 12-ounce pouch. Nutrisource high-performance dog foods provide exceptional healthy nutrition for active dogs of every breed, just like my dog, Daisy. Now they have a topper that gives our four-legged hunters another edge when they need it the most. Check out their full lineup of dog foods at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host. Brandon Morton is our producer. We are nearing the end of February. The snow is falling outside our office right now. Actually, it's mostly blowing sideways, but yeah, we're we're in the middle of a winter storm. Warning, Brandon, where the heck are you right now? I'm sitting in my comfy, cold, dungeonous basement. But it's not outside. <laughs> that's, a, that's the best. Okay, so if anybody's ever questioned, or I should say if my boss, Scott, if you're listening, if you've ever questioned my commitment to this show, I just want you to know that I watched an SUV flip in front of me this morning on my way into the office uh, while going down uh, Interstate 494. It went, on, it went in the ditch, landed on the roof. And I did watch the guy come out, and he was just kind of like, went through one of those OMG moments and his hands went up in the air and he was clearly okay. But, um, that, and surely before I watched that SUV, uh, flip, uh, I was at a stoplight and this woman who was coming way too fast to make her turn at the stoplight came sliding sideways. And I did one of those, no, 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 no. As she was sliding <laughs> sideways right at the front of my vehicle. And then it, she finally came to a stop about two arm lengths, uh, in front of me. And then she just, she just sat there in, in the middle of the intersection for a little bit and kind of, I don't know if she cleaned her pants or what it might've been, but just like making sure everything was okay there. Um, it is, a, it's a, it's a bit wild out there today. So Brandon, you made the right choice, but yeah, when you had some uh, equipment at the office where you could do it remotely. I was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's my bad for not bringing this equipment home because I would have done the exact same thing. So if our audio sounds a little bit different today, it's because we are recording 
a little bit different than we normally do, but thanks to you for making this happen. And for our guest, Nate Akey, joining us today. Nate, is it snowing where you are right now? You know, it's not. Uh, so I'm in, I'm in Oregon, just, just south of Portland. Uh, it's not snowing today. It's actually a little chillier than it has been, but I know if I go east just a little ways, um, it is snowing that way. And then up into the Cascades there, I know it's a kind of blizzard right now as well. I saw some friends traveling through there earlier yesterday and today, and they were showing some videos of some snow blowing up there. So it, there's right. definitely snow nearby. That's for sure. Well, and actually it's a little bit of a blessing. So last week I had Matt Morlock on the show and he's the North Dakota, South Dakota state coordinator for pheasants forever. And we kind of talked about, you know, the state of the birds in the Dakotas right now. And that area was hit hard by the drought last year and they're still really dry. And he mentioned that there was a, a weather pattern that appeared to be uh, changing and they were looking at getting some snow. So last night I texted him and uh, Darwin Wheeldryer who lives out in central South Dakota too. And both of them care immensely about the birds and the habitat out there. And they both said they were, are getting some snow out there. Not enough, not as much as they wanted, but uh, hopefully that's the start of a change in the weather pattern to bring moisture back into the Midwest region out there. But you guys have had a lot of moisture, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, from from what I understand anyway, I know some people could speak on it a little bit better, but from what I can tell, we've had plenty of moisture. Um, most days out hunting, I was able to find some uh, find some water in places that I normally didn't. So I would say there's there's definitely more moisture here this year than there was even last year. But uh, I think it kind of goes up and down. And if you're familiar with the Pacific Northwest, it really depends on where you're at, right? I mean, the 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 climate out here changes whether you go two hours in one direction or the other. It's it's very different. So it could be great in one area, and the other area could be completely awful as far as moisture is concerned. So it's a different different elements out here. Gotcha. Well, we're gonna dig into your story uh, pretty deep here, but before we do, I last week I shared the story about somebody taking my dog on the episode. Nate, I don't know if you listen to that and that's okay if you hadn't, but uh, I did get some feedback from some of our listeners about that, as well as talking about um, a presentation I'm going to give at Pheasant Fest coming up in a couple of weeks about raising a family in the outdoors. So one thing that I've enjoyed is interacting with our listeners and um, hearing stories, but it's kind of, I mean, there's some crazy stories out there and I know there's a lot more. I'm just going to tell you a couple of them that came in. Uh, yeah. Here's one from from Derek Duncan. Travis, I just heard the story of someone taking your dog. I had a very similar situation. We have this crazy, and crazies in quotes, crazy lady that walks her dogs through our neighborhood daily. One day, my kids were outside playing with our dog. He was a golden retriever. He's long past. Similarly, he was trained to stay in the yard. The kids ran in the house real quick for a snack, and by the time they returned, he was gone. Not long after I got a frantic call at work saying he was gone. I drove home and we searched the neighborhood and no luck. As you can imagine, everyone was devastated. This is where it gets fun. That night we got a call saying, I found your dog, but my daughter really likes him. So we are going to keep him. As you can imagine, the expletives began to flow freely. After the involvement of the police, we tracked her down, and lo and behold, it was the crazy lady. We got him back, but to my surprise, she has continued to walk her dogs past my house every day as if nothing ever happened. Love the shows, Derek. 
what the heck? Wild. I know it's wild, Nate. Somebody took the dog out of my yard thinking my dog was lost. That's the essence of the story. We were, we were, my wife and I were in the hospital. My mom was watching our kids and our dog at home. And just to sum it up, she let uh, Daisy go out in the backyard. Daisy likes to run around and stretch her legs a little bit. This guy happened to park in front of our driveway or in front of our yard and she loves people. So she went to go check out what was going on. He took her. He thought she was lost. And it is ridiculous. It is. That's what I thought too. I was like, what the heck? So he had it for like an hour. um, And then he called and left me a message and he said, I'll bring her back. Where do you live? And I told him, and I was like, where did you find her? And he pointed and I was like, dude, you took her out of my yard. (laughs) He took her right out of the yard. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm finding this is not, uh, I'm, I'm clearly not the only person. Here's another one. Doug said, listen to your podcast today. When you talked about someone taking Daisy off your property, thinking she was lost. I'm so glad you got her back. Many years ago, I got my first pointer got her as a pup. I had her for about six months. I would take her for walks regularly around my neighborhood after work. She was special, one, because she was my first, and second, because she was doing so well in training. Her natural ability made it so easy for me to train her. Then one day I came home and she was gone, completely vanished from my backyard. The gate was closed and latched. I never found her. Only thing I can think of is someone was watching me, followed me home, and took her out of my backyard. I was crushed for months. Nothing like that ever happened again. Many years and many bird dogs later, I still cringe. I mean, I, yeah. I just, I can't even, I can't even imagine that. Have you yeah. heard any stories like that, Nate, in your life? You know, I, I have my own personal story, actually. Um, it goes way back to, man, I was in, I don't know, middle school, high school, but we lived on a, on a, on a lake kind of community in uh, in Michigan and there was a lady once again quotes we call her crazy carol um she actually, <laughs> she actually uh, yeah she accused me of letting the dinosaurs loose one day it was interesting um last name but, Bastard. Uh, right it could have been it could have yeah. been uh <laughs> but no i in fact we had a we had a chocolate lab and she was notorious for wanting to explore the neighborhood she was everyone's friend right so she would find any way she could to get out the door before you could stop her and kind of take off. And it was, it was a constant kind of grabbing her. She, she was born to run. But, uh, but one day when we were looking for her, I was out walking around like, where's this dog Ruby? And uh, I came across crazy Carol's house just as she was trying to put her in her van. And um, that in, it was known throughout the neighborhood that she would take dogs. She always had like someone's dog in her yard leashed up and it ended up being someone's from the neighborhood. And at that point, I luckily I found her just then because who knows, she could have taken her and taken her and done who knows what. So caught her just in the right moment. But yeah, that was a, that was an ongoing thing in the neighborhood I grew up in, which everyone thought she was kind of a little off, but dogs would go missing and it kind of all led back to her. Would, would she give them back? No, no. Like they would, they would uh, either be brought to the pound or something of that nature. And people would find their dog at the pound and they'd say, well, how'd it get here? And they said, well, this lady, you know, one way or another, and they, they kind of led back and she would, she had something against dogs in the neighborhood. So Hmm. you would not only grab them out of your yard, but if they were, if they had ran off, if she got a hold of them, you, you may not see it again. It was, it was kind of a bad deal, but uh, I come to find out she had some, 
kind of some schizophrenia or some polar bipolar disorder stuff. So things, things going on there. And I think that's ultimately kind of what led to the, the dog fiasco stuff. Dang, dang. Yeah. That's it's, it blows my mind. Some, sometimes the things that people do. Um, but I, I think it also serves as a good reminder to be aware that the possibility does exist. I mean, you wouldn't think it, I wouldn't have thought it. I didn't think of it when I first got Daisy I had a couple of people mention that put on her call or something that would deter somebody from stealing her, which I did. Uh, I think that's a great piece of advice. I think anybody listening to this podcast is not somebody that I would worry about stealing somebody else's dog. So my advice would be, you know, and, and my dog, I mentioned this last week, it says needs daily meds on her collar. And the the person that took her mentioned that in the voicemail when he called me. I see that she needs daily meds, so I want to make sure I get her back to you. Maybe this was just him being, you know, a, a good citizen, thinking he was doing the best. I still wonder, though, why, you know, cars in the driveway, uh, people obviously home, why he wouldn't just knock on our door and say, is this your dog, before putting her in his car and driving away for an hour. But anyway, she's back. <laughs> Thankful for that. I've heard from other people, too. Their stories are not as, they don't end as well uh, as mine did, but it just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, also, another topic that I mentioned too last week before we move on to Nate's story here, I, I talked about raising a family in the outdoors and my story with my kids. And uh, this uh, Arlen sent me a message and I, I just feel compelled to read it because I think it'll relate to a lot of us. Travis, I was listening to the Flush podcast today and heard you mention your upcoming topic for the Path to the Upland Seminar at Pheasant Fest. I was lucky enough to have my dad, uncles, and their friends introduce me to the outdoors at an early age, instilling a respect for wild places and the joy of spending time outside. You mentioned on the podcast that you have taken your children with you on your outdoor adventures from a young age. I, too, have included my three boys in hunting and fishing trips from the start. I just wanted you... I just wanted you or to urge you to truly relish the time you get to spend with your children as they grow up, because there may come a time when they are ready to head out on their own. I found that once they get their driver's license, they're very anxious to head outdoors with their friends and put our teaching to the test. There seems to be a few years where it is better to enjoy the outdoors without dad tagging along. I thought I would pass this observation along to you. So you can relish the time you have them under your wing in the field. P.S. Congrats on the new hunting partner, Arlen. Yeah, I, th I think that's, you know, I am not in that stage yet. My kids are so young that I don't even think about the fact that there may become a time when they wouldn't. Why would they not want to go hunting with me? I mean, they got to be the coolest person they could ever go hunting with. At least <laughs> that's what I think in my mind. But the reality is I'm certain that there's going to come a time when they're going to say, I can do this without dad. and I know that anybody listening right now might have the the same thing happen with their kids or have already had it. So it just it just drives home that point again that time flies so fast. Every hunting season seems to go faster and faster and I just urge people don't wait to take your kids hunting until that you think they get older. Don't wait to take them fishing until you think they're going to be better at it. There's no reason to wait. Bring them with bring them along, show them success, show them failures, just let them see the reality of what hunting and fishing should be. There's not a, I don't think there's a right or wrong age. And I think it's important to uh, not miss the opportunities you have with your kids. And it might change your success in the field, but you just might have to look at 
what success means to you uh, that day on that particular hunt. And anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. Uh, Nate, let's talk about you. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. You are a, well, I would say when it comes to Instagram, uh, some of the best upland bird hunting photos that I see every year come out of your camera on your account. Um, you're from Michigan originally, and you now you live out west. Uh, what's your What's your story growing up in the hunting world? Yeah, that's kind of a great segue there with the uh, with you know hunting with your with your kids. I don't have kids personally right now, but you know my story starts pretty young, thankfully, uh, because of my dad. Uh, he would, you know, I was man six eight. I I started out bow hunting with him. I didn't have the bow at that age, but man, he would set up a, a hang on tree stand for me next to his and carry me up the tree, climbing it and completely dangerous. Probably wouldn't do it today, but, sure. uh, you know, in, in the same way. Right. Uh, yeah. But, well, yeah, on, on that same note to just jump in, I, I remember yeah. climbing up, uh, not even using tree pegs. My dad would use the branches and then he would cut a couple exactly. branches and say, just sit on these branches because he <laughs> yeah. knew I didn't have to move yeah. around. But that was my deer stand was to sit on the branches for four, five, six hours. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, no, no. Thankfully, he uh, he was he was kind enough to set up a tree stand for me with me, with him. But uh, yeah, that that uh, he would always carry me up, and we did you know no no pegs. It was always you know find find the best pine with the most branches and the in the right spot, and we'd climb that. And that's kind of how I started as far as as far as hunting's go goes. I you know very young age, my dad took me out, and then uh, got fell fell in love with bow hunting because of that, and then always, always did some, some upland hunting in my, in my spare time in between that. And then, you know, I, I wasn't fully into upland hunting at the time. I was still a kid and I didn't have a dog. We had, uh, we had that lab that I mentioned and she was, she was a natural as far as some retrieving stuff, but probably didn't put her to work as much as, as much as we should have. So we did a little waterfall, but never, never really got you know, never fully into upland at a, at a young age. It was always just something that I did in between other hunting when I'd walk around with friends and we'd, uh, we'd just kind of hang out and see if we kick, kick a grouse up or, or a woodcock, you know? So it was, that was kind of my intro, but definitely bow hunting is where bow hunting for whitetail is where I got my start. I was going to ask you if you had any pheasants that you ever hunted or if it was just strictly grouse up there. Well, you know, I, I never, I didn't go to preserves when I was younger and things like that. Obviously in Michigan there, it's very limited on, on pheasant. There are still some, some wild ones over there in the thumb. And I know they've done some uh, introduction stuff over there as well as kind of just some planting. They've started that. I, I don't know the full details over there, but I know there's some areas mm -hmm. that they plant every couple months or every, you know, every month or something like that now as an initiative to get more people out. But um but no, not a whole lot of pheasant hunting when I was younger. Uh, but then, you know, as, as I got older, I would go to, go to some preserves with some people. And then once I got the dog, obviously, uh, you know, I, I made my way West to hunt more pheasants and, and really get into some wild stuff. So that happened, that happened kind of after, after the dog, when it made more sense for me to head out there and, and put her to use. Well, so did you just randomly get a dog and then you turn into this, this uh upland hunting diehard that travels all over the country or did you say was there what, what came first how how did this happen yeah um 
I kind of what came first was just a passion for hunting. The dog was came when I was in grad school, um, and I got I got Tika uh, from a from a guy in Michigan that uh, also knew my advisor when I was in grad school. And my advisor had two uh, two short hairs, and uh, his friend um, he was having a litter and. I decided, yeah, this is the best time. I'm in grad school and busy as hell and, you know, kind of renting and, 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 and it all made sense. Right. So I got a I got a short hair and then I realized, man, I've never trained a dog for pointing. And that's, that's when I started diving deep into what I need to do uh, to train this dog and get it prepared, which led me to NAVDA. And man, I fell in love with the group there, fell in love with just watching the dog grow and seeing, seeing the communication that has to happen with the dog to get it to do the right things. And, and then that, you know, ultimately, you know, the dog is what led me further is kind of, is kind of how that happened. So I wanted, I wanted to see uh, Tika is her name. I wanted to see her excel in the field and, and get on different birds and, and really put her to the test and see what we could get after. And that's, that's what drove me out, you know, into the many places that I've been now hunting. Gotcha. Tika is a beautiful dog. Beautiful dog. I I've looked at her and I'm like, gosh, my next dog. I think I want I want to look just like that. Uh, she's a German short hair pointer, correct? Yep. 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 And she's a when she's you, looker. Yeah, she is. When you decided to get a dog, why did you go that route, German short hair? Well, I I'd like to say I did all the research and and said you know this is what I want and this is why and everything else and it, but it really just came down to once again my advisor had two of them I'd heard great things yeah. about them I wanted a hunting dog um, and I've always done uh, I've always done waterfowl and I've always like I said walked in the walked in the woods and kicked up grouse and woodcock so I wanted a dog that could do both I knew that mm-hmm. they could. And, uh, that's, I was like, yeah, I'm in, let's do this. Let's, let's get a dog so I can utilize her for all these different things. How did you end up at NAVDA? Uh, so that happened. I, well, speaking of podcasts, right. We're on a podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I just looked up, you know, dog training, hunting dogs and, and Ron's podcast came up. He mentioned, he kept saying NAVDA and I had no idea at the time what that was. Uh, so I looked it up and I, I emailed uh, the president of the the Michigan chapter, which was which was Craig at the time, uh, Craig oh, Jones, yeah. and yep. yeah, and uh, he 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 emailed me back. I man, I think within a half hour, and said, "Hey, just show up, come out. This is when we meet. This is where we meet. Love to see you." Um, and I actually went before I even picked up Tika uh, from the breeder, and just to check it out and. And that's, that's, that's how it started. I got there. They were very inviting, um, very good people, very, very much along the same mindset as me. So it was a, it was a fun group to just kind of fall into. And I made friends quickly there. Very cool. Did they have advice as to how you should start training your dog? Well, I I think, I think you go there and so there's, there's one misconception I'd say with, with any NAVDA group, um, when you when you show up there, everyone is willing to help, but but everyone's only willing to help as much as you're willing to ask for help. Um, so it, it really comes up. It's up to you whether or not uh, you want to gain that advice. But, yes, uh, a lot of them had advice on how to start um, because because I asked a lot of questions I, I wanted mm-hmm. to know. And these people had done it. Now, I'll say 
I asked those questions of all those people and to say that there was a one, a one answer uh, trend would be wrong. I mean, everyone had a different idea on how to do it. And I think everyone's idea ultimately worked for them. And all it gave me was just the knowledge of, of ways to start um, and then uh, use them accordingly as I saw with my dog, which was great. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, yep, this is how you do it kind of thing. It was a, this is how I did it sort of thing. Right, right. There's so many, so many ways to work with your dog and to train your dog that sometimes I think it can be intimidating for some people. <clears throat> sometimes it may be frustrating a little bit because you're it, the the time it takes to see the process play out can can be a while, you know, and then it makes you question in your mind, am I doing the right thing here? Have I made mistakes? And so you mentioned having those people at NAVDA that you talk to and ask questions. I think for me personally, when I was going through the training process with Daisy and watching her just want to run 750 miles, you know, at one, one straight shot. And I'm like, what in the world am I doing wrong here? And I'm seeing everyone else's dogs. And I just kept being reassured, just keep doing it. Keep trust the process, trust the process. It'll come. And now it, you know, I can speak to that, but in the moment and you know, when it's happening, it's, you're just really wondering if I'm doing the right thing or not. How often did you go back to those people or did you have a regular, uh, did you make friends there that you just stayed in touch with while you were training? Yeah. Well, I mean, we met, we met every Wednesday, um, you know, so that, that always helped. And, and it was, it was up to you whether you wanted to go for me, yeah. it became the most enjoyable thing. Also an excuse to get my dog out when, when obviously schedules get busy, life gets busy. It gave me a scheduled thing on, on, you know, on the calendar every week to say, okay, this I'm working with my dog for sure this day. Um, and that's how it started. And then as I kind of dove into the, the, you know, doing, doing the field tests, I would, you know, now I'd go like every day and I'd meet up with other people and we were getting our dogs at a, at a different level than just kind of introduction stuff. But, you know, I, going back to what you're saying, as far as starting early on, it's, yeah, I think a lot of people do kind of what you, what you're saying. You look at other people's dogs and you say, well, why isn't mine doing this? Why isn't mine doing that? And I think it's a, it's a good reminder to tell people that when, when you're training your dog, kind of focus on your dog. If you, if you watch everyone else's, you kind of get into this, this mindset of why is it mine? And in a lot of it just comes down to keep being persistent, be, be, you know, be as consistent also with your dog as you can. And, and everyone's dog is at a different level. Everyone's dog learns differently. And in that comparison that we kind of all naturally do sometimes actually does a disservice to your dog. So just focus on your own and, and keep the work up that you're, you're already doing. That's great advice. How old is Tika now? Uh, she'll be six here in May. So she's, she's, um, she's definitely more relaxed than, than she's ever been. Like we talked about before. Um, uh, but she's, she's come into her own. She's kind of a, a, a dog that has structure now. She, she's still in bed right now. Like I said, she won't, she's, she has that off switch in the home, which is awesome. Um, but when we get out in the field, she, she knows her job, but, uh, yeah, she's still very trainable, which is another thing that I've learned that a lot of people, you know, they say, old dogs can't learn new tricks. Right. But I, I would completely disagree. She's not old. She's right in her prime, but as she's gotten older, she's just been able to pick up on things quicker. And part of that I think is her, her, uh, intelligence has grown. And then also my intelligence on how to communicate with her has grown quite a bit. 
Yeah, I've talked to several dog trainers and they've all said the same thing that you can't teach teach an old dog new tricks is just people being lazy and not not wanting to work with their dog that might not be a puppy and they just accept the bad traits and they say well it's just who that dog is well no that's not true you can train a dog at any age and they will learn they want to learn that's how their that's how the canine world works so um yeah it's that's a lot of good advice at what point did you see tika like the, like all of your work just really come to fruition to like, she is, uh, just doing exact, you know, like she has hit her prime. Yeah, I think, uh, so it, it couples with a trip that I took Well, basically my trip out West here. Um, we had just trained, uh, in Michigan all summer for the utility test. We were getting ready for that. We, uh, we had that in August, uh, not this last year, but the year before. And, and she, you know, through all of that training was doing well as far as what the test requires. And then we got a prize one. And then from there, I actually made the move, um, out here to Oregon. But as, as you know, already, I, I took a couple weeks to, uh, hunt with Tyler, in in brent and in a bunch of those guys in montana and then a little bit in north dakota as well and i think midway through that trip because of all the training all the intense training throughout the summer and then putting around those wild birds man everything just kind of came together in that moment and since it's been it's been you know when we're out in the field we're in we're we're together we're a cohesive unit um she understands what I expect and, and I understand what she needs. And, and since then it's kind of, it's kind of just, it's all clicked, but yeah, that, that training into that trip, uh, getting on a lot of birds is really when I saw her come into her own. And I think that, so she would have been, Oh, right around three and a half at that time. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And you, when you say Tyler, Tyler Webster is who you're referring yeah. to uh, yeah, from birds, booze sure. and buds podcast. Tyler is a great mutual friend of both of ours. Um, and obviously he lives in some of the best bird country in North America, up in Northwest North Dakota. And, um, <clears throat> I think, you know, like I've hunted with Tyler, you've hunted with Tyler, you start to go on these adventures and you hunt with some people, um, you know, and he's just somebody that has so much experience out there and he's around so many birds all the time that if you go hunt, you know, like when you go hunt with Tyler, you know, it's going to be a trip that you're going to remember forever. Have you ever been on a, I've had a bad hunt with Tyler. Ah, trying to think, I feel like, well, overall, no, have we had some days that were a little rough? I would say, I think, uh, that first couple days, uh, sage grouse hunting with him in Montana weren't, weren't rough for me. I got one within an hour, um, which was great. Uh, but they were rough for those guys because they hadn't gotten on the birds. We had split off and just hadn't found any. And there's one thing about Tyler when he's on a mission and it's not falling in his favor, he's in the, he becomes a little bit irritable, irritable. And, yeah, he was getting that way there. He was like, man, this is bullshit. You know, he was kind of, he was kind of <laughs> on edge. Like we got to get this done. Um, so it, it was funny to watch that, especially knowing I already had one in the bag. So I could, I could tease it a little bit. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, what have you learned hunting with Tyler in your career? Um, uh, well with, with Tyler, um, 
Man, I think the biggest thing, you know, I think Tyler's a great hunter. I think he, I think he understands the prairie very well. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing with him is, is just going where the birds are. Don't waste your time going in places that don't have birds. I mean, I, I, I know it makes sense, right? We all say do it. We'll just go where the birds are, but he does a very good job of, of learning, you know, through connections, um, you know, one day we hadn't got into those sage grouse and we just went to a bar uh, for lunch and he bought a beer for the bar. And that's how he met people. And they end up telling him, you know, where we should go next. And that's ultimately how we got into another covey that he got his first sage grouse on. So, you know, I think I think one thing I've learned from Tyler more than anything is that he's really good at is that those connections and, and using those connections to your advantage as far as where to go hunting. And and when I say use those connections, I think he out of the kindness of his heart, he's willing to kind of give give back uh, whatever mm-hmm. he can in in place of, you know, some of that knowledge. So I think I think being kind within the community is one thing I've, I've learned from him. And then also just being able to communicate with people and in and, and hunt with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and you're a Michigan guy coming out of the forest up there and now you live up in the mountain country, Chucker country in Oregon. So taking what you've learned from those kind of hunting trips where you finally left Michigan and you went out West, um, I, I will just piggyback off of that. A lot of hunters in the West are after big game. That's just what they love to do. And birds become not something that it's not that they don't care about them. It's just that they may not be pursuing them. And so a lot of information comes freely to locals. If you're out there interacting with them because they're just simply not hunting for them like we are. So it's easy to get that information when you're willing to talk to people and just be real with them. And you can learn a lot really quickly that way. But once you're out in the field, you still have to put it together. Um, So you move out. First of all, why did you move to Oregon? Yeah, it was actually for for uh, my wife's wife's work. So she ended up getting a position out here. We had a few choices through through what she does, and and this was one of the options. And we both agreed that the Pacific Northwest would be a cool place to to just go to and, and see and learn. It'd been a place that we had experienced, and and uh, I I had no idea about the bird hunting opportunity until after we had decided, once we decided, I started looking at, at Oregon and I was like, Oh, this is a, you know, there's, there's some opportunity out here. So, um, that, that made it a lot more interesting right away and coming during bird season, it became, you know, all I, all I focused on early on there when I got out here. So, um, yeah, so ultimately it was for, for her position, but, uh, but we've, we've kind of set up shop here a little bit and, and it's been a fun ride so far. What is, what's the biggest takeaway of, uh, your time out there is this your first season first full season out there or this was, was this, my, this was my second so yeah okay. this this year uh was was a little bit different than last year but um uh but last year uh i dove into it deep and in this year the same but i i think this year i focused a lot more on chucker than some of the other species that i that i focused on out here uh early on but uh but yeah yeah this was my second season out so what are the other species that you can hunt in Oregon? Well, um, the ones I have hunted, uh, so mountain quail, uh, rough grouse, uh, there's, there's valley quail, um, obviously the, obviously chucker, pheasant. Um, 
I haven't hunted blues yet, but that is an option as well. And then uh, you can hunt sage here, but you do have to apply and draw draw a tag for the certain areas. And I believe you can get two a year if you draw, um, but you, you may not draw every year. I, I haven't. Uh, I was going to apply here last year, but the seasons ended up uh, right during the uh, NAVDA Invitational, which I was at this year. So um, because of because of that conflict, I didn't apply. Uh, but uh, possibly, possibly if I get it next year, I want to give it a shot. If you're an avid outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumakln.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. There are many places that you can buy products to process and prepare your meat. There are not a lot of places that you can buy those products and learn how to use them from experts. Walton's is that place. They have everything, and I mean everything, for your cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have the experts on staff to help you learn how to use their products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their Meatgistics podcast, live streams, and live chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. From sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasoning, and so much more, they've got you covered. Walton's products ship the same day you order, and while they have nearly every brand you'd ever want to purchase, they also have their own line of Walton's grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, vacuum sealers, and so much more. Walton's, they have everything but the meat. What is the most popular game upland game bird out there for other hunters? I I would assume chucker as far as as far as uplands concerned. Um, I think grouse are definitely just a passive uh, passive pursuit for most people uh, out here. I think pheasant is probably second to chucker uh, it, because the ease of uh, the ease of being able to hunt pheasant as opposed to chucker. I wouldn't say that the numbers are near. You know, the numbers of pheasants aren't near what chucker are, but but the ease of hunting them draws more people. So there's, there's that. Um, yeah. And then I think quail, I think quail is a, is a pursuit for a lot of people as well. Um, but definitely grouse is just an after that's, that's more of a, if you're elk hunting sort of thing and, and you, you see one, you shoot one, or, you know, if you're driving down a, a, a logging trail or whatever, and you see one, then you might shoot one. But um, I know every time I've been grouse hunting with my dog, I've been stopped by a number of people in some of those areas and they always ask, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm bird hunting. And they go, why, <laughs> you know, why, why are you doing that? Uh, so it's kind of funny to be a, a grouse hunter out here because they, people, as far as hunters and people in the area, they don't take it as seriously as some of us do, especially in the Midwest where I come from. Well, and that goes back to what I mentioned earlier too. You could talk to just about anybody out West and they're going to give you information about birds because they're just not interested in them. A lot of people right. aren't. 
Yeah, it's amazing right. that that fact. And then also, you know, when I've been out in the western states hunting, yeah, I don't I don't know that I've ever seen well, in Arizona we saw a truck drive by that had dog kennels in the back, so I guess that counts. But um, you know, we just never see other bird hunters when we're out there. Um, and and the amount of land access that's available BLM or state properties or different programs really give us bird hunters a lot of opportunities. Um, I would imagine you pull up to the, the base of a mountain, you're not parking next to other chucker hunters typically, are you? Ooh, uh, you know, I would, I would actually say this year, um, there wasn't a whole lot of areas that I went to that I didn't see another vehicle. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, last year, um, there was areas as far as chucker hunting is concerned, right? So chucker hunting, I think has, has definitely, uh, gained in popularity out here. And, okay. and I don't know that necessarily from my experience, but from the people that have hunted out here for a long time that I've hunted with and talked to, yeah, they're seeing an influx of, of more hunters chucker hunting and, and whether it's good or bad, you know, I, it's hard, it's hard to say. Um, but, but I do think that, yeah, I mean, the popularity, is there and I'm meeting a lot of people in the field. Um, it's been an interesting season. There's been times I've been hunting and, and you, you kind of think you have a ridge to yourself and all of a sudden the guy comes up over the hill and he's there with his dogs and it's, you know, someone you've either talked to online or whatever else. It's still a small community. You probably know the people that are out there. And I've, I've met people on the hill that I'm like, Oh yeah, Hey, I know you. And it's nice to meet you, that sort of thing. And you're kind of in the middle of the nowhere, middle of nowhere, looking over, and there's this guy with a dog, and you have some sort of connection. So it's pretty interesting. But, but yeah, I, there's been a lot of areas this year that, uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, a hunt recently that uh, I went on, oh, right towards the end of the season with uh, Matt Harding. We met up and and uh, tried to do some hunting and man, every spot we went to, there was a, a truck and we had to kind of make do in a spot that we normally wouldn't hunt. And it was, it was barely productive, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of people that day and, and I, I wouldn't have expected it the year before. Wow. Is it, so you say it's, you don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Why would it be a good thing? Why would it be a bad thing? Yeah. I, I think there's two opinions on that, right? Obviously the, the pressure is the bad thing. People, people take that as a bad thing. Um, and, and obviously everyone says, Oh man, my spots are getting taken and, and whatever else. And that's why people would say it's a bad thing. Um, the good thing is, you know, if there's, if there's more people, more people hunting, more people, uh, pursuing the same thing that you are, uh, there's, there's likely going to be more support. I say likely because I think as, as a group, as hunters, um, we sometimes are quieter than we need to be. Uh, I think, I think, uh, just cause there's more hunters doesn't mean that they're necessarily speaking up, uh, for the things that we need to preserve and, and make sure aren't taken away. And I would just, you know, I, I'd lean on that and encourage the people that are starting to get into hunting and those who have always hunted that, you know, our voices need to be a little louder to make sure that we preserve these so that if we do have more hunters, we're, we're still making the right efforts to, to keep those hunting opportunities. Well said. Uh, Ron Scherer, the founder of our company, he has said to me multiple times that one of the downfalls of hunters and anglers, uh, by nature, we go hunting and fishing to get away from the noise, to unplug, to get away from 
politics, drama, whatever it might be. But it also is a negative because we need our voices to be heard to make a difference out there. And uh, it's true. It's true. I mean, we don't have enough of us standing up for the the birds, the habitat, the wild places that we should because we're, we're out there hunting. We're getting away from it all. So, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I fully, fully agree with you on that. Um, <clears throat> Nate, you, you um, spend a lot of time. Well, a couple of topics we'll get. Let me start with this one. It, yeah, because yeah. you were in Michigan hunting grouse. You know, you did not experience mountain birds, open prairies, big, big landscapes. What advice do you have for somebody that you know? Because I've talked about chucker hunting on here in some of the western states, the birds out there, and it might be intimidating to somebody that wants to drive out and experience it. What advice do you have for somebody that says, you know what? Fine, I'm going to do it. I've heard all this talk about it. I want to experience it. Um, how would you? encourage somebody to begin? Well, I, I think if, if they're nervous about it, obviously don't be, um, make, come on out, you know, do, do exactly what you want to do whenever you have time. Um, if you're, you know, in my experience coming from the Midwest, it seems a little intimidating, but it, you know, you just, you gotta be in decent shape. I think, you know, we've all talked about it and I, it does, it does beat my ass on the Hill, but I, there's ways to do it that it doesn't. I kind of am, you know, outside of the norm. And I enjoy, I enjoy the physical aspects. So sometimes I push myself a little bit further than I should. And and always want to go over one more hill and and go on what we refer to as a boat ride out here, which is just a long, (laughs) a long walk, right? A long, long hike of lots and ups and downs, but you don't necessarily have to do that. There's ways to do it without, without doing that and still be successful. So, you know, come out, experience it, see the places and know that the place, the places that it takes you are probably, probably just as important as the actual success of, of getting the bird. Um, but, but on top of that, as a, as a Midwestern hunter, if you're a grouse hunter, um, I see a lot of overlap in chucker hunting and grouse hunting. Um, in, in the reason I say that is because chucker, even though they're a cubby bird, as opposed to grouse, they, they are very similar in the way they devise escape routes. Um, you know, when you, when you, when your dog goes on point in the grouse woods, the, that's when the chess game starts. You start looking for openings, uh, in trees, where that dog's pointing, where this bird could be. And you, you start trying to play that guessing game of where it's going to flush. So you can get your shot off in that area. And, you know, maybe 50% of the time you're right, 50% of the time you're wrong. And, and of that 50% of the time you're right, you know, only 20% of the time do you connect on the bird or get the shot off. Well, when you come out chucker hunting, it looks very open, right? So it's not timber, it's not trees. It's, it, it looks very open. Like you're going to get a shot no matter what, but really they're doing the same thing. And you got to play that chess game. You got to see, are those birds going to, you know, are they going to use that hillside to their advantage to put that hill in between you and them? Are they using rocks to put that in between? You know, they're, they're constantly devising escape routes as well. And that could be as simple as just dropping off a hillside or, like I said, tucking behind some rocks or running uphill and getting out of where your your shotgun range is before they flush and that sort of thing. So it's very similar as far as the way you, you need to approach them. Once that point happens, I think the chess game is very similar between grouse and chucker. Yeah, I would agree. And they're notorious, chucker are notorious for running up the mountain and flying down. And right. I remember multiple points where I didn't, 
I forget which state we were hunting, but I didn't take a shot at a, at a cubby rise that was on the side of this really extreme cliff because even if I hit a bird, the chances of me finding it were so slim because it was like, a, I don't know, 500, 600 foot cliff straight down. I'm like, I don't want a dog to follow. I don't know that I'll be able to get down there to recover the bird. Uh, it's it's very unique trying to take a shot at a bird well below you when you're used to hunting and birds getting up. And then obviously, right. you know, knowing your shot too. So yeah, it is, it's a heck of a game. When you hunted with Matt Harding, I, I hunted with him a couple of years ago and I consider him kind of like an upland athlete, uh, you know, because <laughs> he's like, you just mentioned where he just wants to push his body to the limit. Same with Travis Warren. They hunted together quite a bit. I, I, I know Matt moved, but um, yeah, I assume they probably still hunt together. Could you keep up with him? Yeah, no, I can't keep up with Matt. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he moves he up there. That. Yeah, he does a he does a great job of uh, of covering. I, I don't know if if his bird dogs are doing the work or if he is. Sometimes that's that's where I'm like, matter. Why do you why do you get these dogs if all you're gonna do is chase on the birds? But no, I can't exactly keep up with him. He's definitely definitely an athlete in the hills. But uh, we have a way we've we've hunted together and talked enough at this point to where when we get out in the field, I may be. A little bit slower in the hills, but we have a way of hunting together that works out real well. So, That's but cool. no, I can't. It, him and then another friend of mine, uh, Levi Day. Both of those guys are just, you know, fast. I mean, they they glide over hills, which blows my mind when I'm when I'm sweating and struggling. But but they do a great job of making a way making their way through. That's fun. I I thoroughly enjoyed hunting with Matt out there. He's a good man. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I've been talking about the Onyx Hunt app since we started producing this show, and that's simply because I use it on every single hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that I can legally hunt on. The Onyx Hunt app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land, federal lands, walk-in access properties, etc. The app also has new features this year that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. If you hunt grouse in the north woods, there's a timber cut layer to help you find ideal habitat. If you're planning to hunt North Dakota this year, then there's a very important layer that has been added to the app that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the tools Onyx Maps give us. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. For generations, bird hunters have hit the fields carrying some form of a vest or game pouch on their backs. Sometimes the vests rip, tear, and fall apart. Other times, they are downright uncomfortable. That's why Chief Upland designed a vest that's durable, comfortable, and fits your needs. Their new Upland vest is fully customizable to fit the size and shape of all hunters. Plus, you decide where you want to attach your shell pouches and accessories. Birds can be front-loaded into the game pouch, and they fit nicely in the back without sagging. That's a big deal because the weight disbursement on your back and shoulders won't tire you out, even with a full pouch of birds. The vest itself is extremely lightweight, weighing only 2.56 pounds. The material is built out of Cordura fabric, which is the same waterproof fabric used in tactical military gear. You can confidently hunt with a chief upland vest in some of the world's toughest environments. Order your Chief Upland vest now to make sure that you're ready for your next hunt. Push further and hunt longer with a game-changing vest from Chief Upland, built for your pursuit. 
you spend a lot of time hunting with your wife, which I, I love it. I appreciate that. Uh, when, what did it take to get her hunting or was it, was it Caroline that asked you, Hey, take me with which, which happened first? Well, it's a, a little bit of both. The, the thing about Caroline is she's been around the outdoors her whole life. One thing that isn't known about Caroline is, is well, my in-laws, they, they own a hunting and fishing lodge. It's called uh, Expeditions North Lodge, which is in Ontario. It's a fly-in, uh, fly-in lodge. Um, and Caroline, you know, as far as the outdoors are concerned, she spent every summer of her childhood uh, there. I mean, she was in the, in the bush, you know, out, outside of civilization every, every summer. So she's been around this stuff all her life. Right. So the outdoors are nothing new to her, but she's never really taken on the, uh, the hunting, uh, as much as I have and, and has, you know, a, a light interest in it. And in last year, she went out with me, uh, a number of times, but it was more, she didn't even carry a gun. It was more just, Hey, I want to get out. I want to see some of these places that you're hunting because the scenery is beautiful. And, and on top of that, she really loves watching Tika work. Um, she, she loves how, how happy Tika is in the field and loves seeing that. So she wanted to go with me. Um, and then, and then kind of throughout the off season, she wanted to start shooting clay. So we did that a couple times. And then I think early on, right before the season, she mentioned, Hey, you know, I'd probably go with you and hunt more if I had, if I had a gun that fit me well, cause she had just been using, um, my guns up until that point. And with, with her length of pull and everything else, it just was kind of cumbersome for her. So, uh, so as soon as she said that, I didn't, I didn't necessarily hesitate. We went and, uh, went and got one that fit her better. And, uh, and she decided to start carrying. Now we got out there, we went and, me being who I am, I think I pushed it a little too hard. And, you know, I think you got to be careful with that, especially with anyone who's new to it, especially chucker hunting. Don't, don't make it miserable for them. Um, and I'm guilty of doing that probably the first couple times by just going too far, too far. Right. And, so chucker and, hunting was her first, first bird hunt then. Yeah. Well, she, yeah, I can't remember exactly which one was her first. She, um, she's gone, grouse hunting and quail hunting with me in the in the coast range there she's taken some shots at some mountain quail but hasn't connected yet um but but chucker hunting is what i've done more of this year and i think part of that is we we enjoy the scenery out there and kind of the rain and the coast range here kind of deters us from grouse and quail hunting too much uh, if it's if it's real wet so going east always usually better weather and uh yeah so she went out there a number of times and 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 there were some days where she was all for it. She wanted to go. And some days where she was like, no, I'm not ready to walk 16 miles today. I don't want to go do it. <laughs> um, so, so I completely understand. And I had, I had to kind of cut back on that and actually made for much, much more uh, fun trips, actually cutting down on the intensity of, you know, having to, having to get more cubbies that I, I fall into from time to time and, and just kind of focusing on the time that we were spending. And it, it became very fun. Um, and fortunately she was able to right, right towards the, uh, end of the season, last, the last bit, she was able to connect on, on one bird out of the first covey. And then we mentioned before, as far as how 
how the uh, terrain can can burn you and she connected on another one but unfortunately it was kind of over a cliffside and it dropped into the canyon that we weren't able to retrieve so it, it was a bummer but um but yeah no she finally she finally connected on one and it was it was exciting it was it, it was kind of the culmination of all that work and effort and the climb and everything and just seeing it all come together she was stoked i was stoked it was it was a fun day I was going to ask, do you think you uh, celebrated more than she did? Because I have to imagine you just in the back of your mind. I know when I take people, I'm always trying to put them in the best spot, always trying yeah. to you know make it happen for them. And then when it doesn't, it's like, oh, but when it does right. happen, just like the, the excitement. I mean, it must have just been a party that night for you, too. I was I was. I, I I was probably more excited. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she was, she, she was glad that it finally happened. It was almost like to kind of get the weight off her shoulders. So she find she, that felt good to her, but uh, I, I can't remember exactly what she, what she said, but she said, she said something of that nature where she's like, well, you're more excited than I am right now, but I'm glad that we finally, I finally knocked one down. And she said it right after, right after she did. I don't even think T had retrieved the bird yet. And I was cheering with her. So it was, it was pretty interesting. It was fun. I love it. I, I've told many, many, uh, men to, uh, take their wives or girlfriends along with them when they've talked about it. Cause they've watched me take my wife out hunting. And you know, when the, whenever the topic comes up, I always tell them like, don't, don't miss that chance to do it. Trust me, just try it, do it. Maybe it's just clay, clay pigeons at first. Um, but just, work towards that and bring them along and they will understand why you do what you do and they may want to join you more often. And I get that for some people, it's an escape. They want to just have their own time, but man, it just like the, the, your whole relationship will blossom when you do stuff like that together. It just, you can't avoid it. Yeah. It it blossoms. But uh, on the other end of that, be ready for, you know, it, some some pissing matches on the on the hillside too there's there's times that's there's healthy time. that's healthy yeah. that's okay for sure there's been times where she's been mad at me and and i don't I, i'm notorious for going up and and just kind of not looking at my watch and before you know it the sun's going down it's beautiful but we still got a five mile walk out of here yeah. um yeah. and 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 she's a great reminder that hey the sun's going down we should probably head back uh, I don't care if Tika's pointing, you know, 600 yards over there, call her <laughs> off because we gotta, we gotta go. Um, oh. that's so, yeah, I mean, be ready, be ready for that. But also, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a great time to be out there with someone, uh, someone that you love and, and, and watch them kind of put the pieces together as well and, and realize why, why I go out and do it. And, you know, I think she kind of realized that early on, because like I said, she really enjoyed watching Tika. Uh, do her thing. And ultimately that's, that's why I love going out as well. So. Amen. I, I remember my wife fell in love with the Frankie 20 gauge, uh, Frankie instinct 20 gauge. It just fit her really nicely. What did your wife settle on? We actually, so we ended up with the CZ Bob white, um, which I think is a great gun, uh, for the, for the price point. Um, and, and I think, the the nice thing was she hadn't done too much shotgun shooting uh in the past so that double trigger she still figured out but she didn't have to like relearn something because she hadn't quite learned the single trigger 
you know, otherwise. So we're still figuring that out. But um, I know if I went to the double trigger right now, it would take me, you know, and there'd be a learning curve as well, because I have rarely used one with a double trigger. So we went with that bob weight in a in a 20 gauge. And I think, you know, the nice thing about that gun is it actually does fit me as well. But with that straight stock, there's not a, a place that you have to necessarily put your hand in and because of that, it fits her as well, just because the length of pull is just based on where she has her hand there. So so it, it fits her well. It's a little bit shorter on me because it is a little shorter stock than what I'm used to. But but uh, but it, I think it's it's a pretty universal gun because of that. Um, but I would be interested in, in I think we're going to maybe look at some other guns and stuff for her to see if we can get, get an exact fit and see how that works out, too, because obviously with an exact fit, it's only going to make her better. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, just, just throwing it out there. I've taken several of my, my buddies, their wives have come out because my wife loves to shoot so much. So we go target shooting is kind of like a date. And I bring a couple different guns, the eight to eight U by Benelli, the 20 gauge. They're both that gun and the Frankie 20 gauge. They're really lightweight, which is big uh, for the girls and the, right. you know, the length of the stock too. But just something to think about. I mean, I, I recommend at least looking at those two guns if you're going to look at it for Caroline, but for anybody else listening too, just to, something to think about, you know, if they do decide to bring their wife along. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned um, you have the best photos on Instagram of any bird hunter. At least they're, I think they're just amazing. Um, I always appreciate your work. Um and I was hoping or figuring I'd spend a lot of time on how you followed your dream into the photography world and how you've made it your, you know, part of your career. And we've been talking, we have so much in common that we've been talking for almost an hour now. Um, but I do want to get into the photography side because you have, you've really taken off. Your skills are showing up all over the place. When did you decide to uh, get into the, the outdoor photography world and how did it start for you? Yeah, well, first off, thank you. I, I I appreciate the kind words, and I and I I hope they're right. And I and I think there's a lot of a lot of great people that are taking some great photos right now. I think there's a, a number of people that are starting to figure it out, and I'm seeing more and more every year, which is really cool because it 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 adds to my creativity as well. So I get to see what other people are doing, and it kind of pushes me to do some do some more creative things also. So that it's it's really fun to see. But no, kind of my start with it. I've, man, I've always, uh, man, I started just with my iPhone, right? That's the the biggest content producer out there. And I was taking some fun photos there. Um, I have a friend back in Michigan that, uh, his name's Eric and, um, he was a photographer and did a lot of outdoor stuff. And I kind of reached out to him and I was like, Hey, what should, what should I grab here? I want to take some more photos in the field. Um, I, I think my biggest draw at that point was I, I wanted to capture kind of those, those moments that in the field that, that really, you know, really speak to us things that we really remember. I, I, I love seeing the grip and grins. I I'm, you know, where a lot of people don't, right. A lot of people are kind of like no grip and grins. And I'm like, you know, I want you to celebrate your prize. So I see that a lot and I enjoy that, but I wanted to start capturing more of the, uh, you know, kind of the in-betweens, those small moments that that make it all come together. So I wanted to uh, get a camera and, and start figuring that out. And I reached out to my buddy, Eric, and he kind of filled me in. And I ended up with a, oh, a Sony A, A6000 to start. Um, 
And uh, I still have actually I have my buddy or Matt Harding. He has that camera right now because yeah. he needed it as a spare. Um, he has some other ones, but one of his went down. So he grabbed that from me one of those days. And uh, but no, I started with that, which is a crop sensor, a little bit small. It's real lightweight for someone who's looking for some a lightweight option uh, out in the field. And it takes some takes some really good images and 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 started with that camera and really just started just started shooting, you know, just taking photos as many as I could and figuring out lenses and figuring out, you know, different settings and, and, and capturing those moments. And, and I started putting them out there and I got a great response. And that's, that's kind of that, that helped obviously with me wanting to keep doing it. Um, and, and since then I've, I've really fought, it's become a creative outlet for me. Um, and I've stepped up in some cameras, uh, in some lenses and, and that creative outlet for me has really been the biggest push to keep doing it. And because of that, you know, as far as career sense goes, I, I never, I never did it in to start making money off it, off it, or, or, you know, make it a career. It was, it was something that I did because I wanted just to capture those moments for myself and for friends. I really wanted to give friends that I was hunting with some, some images, better images than what they normally get. And, uh, you know, people started noticing and reaching out and asking if I'd take photos for their brand or if they could use a lifestyle shop for something or whatever else. And, and that kind of snowballed into, yeah, now I do it, do it for a number of brands, um, you know, whether it be product stuff. But, you know, when I say product, I mean mostly lifestyle product photography mm-hmm. and um, and. And it's been fun. It's been a great way to connect with people. It's been a great way to uh, meet people within the industry. And and every you know every trip I go on, I, I get to push the envelope on that. And it's been a, it's been a great journey all the way through. Um, and it kind of just started with wanting to capture those moments that otherwise get pushed to the wayside because normally we're hunting and we just get a get a photo at the end. And I wanted to get the stuff in between, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, the work speaks for itself. Uh, people haven't uh, followed your page. What's the handle on Instagram? Uh, it's it's Nathaniel Akey. It's just my my full name. Um, I, it would have been Nate Akey, uh, but someone had already grabbed that one. So I went with with my full name, which my which my mom prefers uh nathaniel is what it is. <laughs> well at least you got that i didn't realize how many travis franks there are in the world because i couldn't get my own name either um when people a lot of times reach out they'll say you know how did you get where you where you got or to get like the job that i do and and i don't ever have a real um i don't think there's ever at least in this industry, you go to school, you do this and then this step and this step, and then boom, you're a marketing director or you're a television producer. It seems like everybody that I talk to has their own story, just like yours. I mean, you had this passion and you just did it for fun and you don't always know where it's going to lead. So do you have any advice for somebody that says, I want to get into the outdoor world. I want a career in the outdoor world. How do I start? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing for me, I, you know, I've seen this term go go around, but it's it's a connection uh, economy as far as as far as the outdoor industry and and the connections matter. And I think making connections with people within the industry already can be uh, tough. It can be intimidating, things like that. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just reaching out to people, um, make connections, and and do it not 
I, I, I think a lot of people look at it as a, well, I'm making connections, I'm networking as a business entity, but but the best way to do it is just approach people that you already have a in common interest with and talk to them about your interests, you know, um, and, and make those connections. If you have a service to offer, it'll probably blossom through that. Um, I think, I think that's the biggest thing. And then, you know, just, just if, if you, ha- if you're trying to make it within the outdoor industry and it's hard, it's hard for me to say, because I still look at it like, well, I'm, I'm still, I'm working within that stuff, but um, you know, I, I, I never feel like I've ultimately made it right. There's, I don't know where that, where, where that line hits, I guess. Um, but I, I think a lot of it just came down to meeting a lot of great people within the industry. And then I had a service that, um, that they enjoyed, they saw, they saw some value in and, uh, and, and I gave that to them. And then, and then on top of that, um, I think once you are doing some work for people, the biggest thing is, is making sure that, that you come to an understanding with them, if, whether it's be photography or whatever else, um, that you're, you know, what you're offering, uh, you can give that to them within the time, within whatever budget they have, um, and just making sure everything's clear on the table so that when you do, when you do produce stuff for people that they're ultimately happy with, uh, with the results. And I think, I think that's big. I think a lot of, a lot of times I see people that want to take photography within it or whatever else. And they kind of, they over promise sometimes and, and that can get them in trouble. So, so making sure that your deliverables are always, uh, always within your means and in the, the the customer or the person you're working with is happy at the end that's great advice how about on the photography side of things i i remember oh gosh i probably got into photography about 15 years ago and you mentioned the iphone is the biggest content creator i find that i just it's been years since i've brought my dslr with out in the field i mean we're always filming video uh, that's my main goal every day is to make sure I leave with the television show. So my personal photography has taken the back seat, but I always, you know, snap a few photos with my iPhone out there. Um, but I just, in, I love the creative outlet of being able to, to have that photography uh, on the side and I miss it. Um, but do you have advice for people that want to get into photography that see these photos and say, I want to do that? I mean, how would where, where should yeah. they start? Yeah, I mean, if if you're looking to take photos in the field, I you know one thing people always ask me, well, how do you carry your camera? Um, I and I always lead them back to uh, the Peak Design, the uh, the capture clip. It actually straps to your. You can put it right on your vest, and it you can clip your camera there, and and it actually doesn't get in the way when I shoot. So I'm able to not only hunt. Uh, but also have my camera basically ready whenever, if I want to take a photo, which, which is really nice. I mean, because I'm a lot of times I'm hunting and I'm, and I'm taking photos. And then there's other times where I'm just taking photos, which I can get a little bit more creative if I'm just doing photos, but, but ultimately I love to hunt. And that's been a great asset to me is that peak capture clip to be able to do both and have that with me at all times. Um, but the other thing is, I mean, if you're looking to looking to do take photos uh, that are a little bit a little bit more creative, a little bit uh, a little bit better, uh, I think get get creative with where you take them from. No no angles, you know. Be willing to get on the ground and take a photo. Be willing to get at the dog's level and take a photo. Um, you know, get make sure if you're working with guns that obviously you're not in an area where where it's not safe. You want to you want to still mm-hmm. do that. But, um, but, you know, get in a different position than, than what's normally, normally seen. And then, 
you know, if you're, if you're looking at uh, gear, um, I th- you know, a big line for me is creativity doesn't start until you use something for a purpose that it wasn't intended for. Um, and I take that to heart a lot of times when I'm looking at gear, as far as like lenses, um, you know, if you have, you know, everyone wants, everyone, you know, points at the nifty 50, the 50 millimeter as a, as a good lens. And it, it is a great lens, but sometimes, you know, grabbing a lens that you normally wouldn't use for something using a, you know, a, a, a big portrait lens, um, for something as a lifestyle photography adds a different perspective or, you know, using a wide angle for stuff, uh, when you're closer, that adds a little different perspective that can make things, uh, make things a little bit more creative, which people that don't necessarily use a camera every day may not see it and, and notice like how you did it but they're going to notice even without knowing that that's a perspective that they hadn't seen before. And that's ultimately going to draw them towards that photo. So being creative with the gear that you use and using it outside of what you'd normally use is another great way to have, have some more creativity in your stuff. Yeah, that's great advice. One thing that I, or a couple of things to add to that. Um, I've seen people that have gone out in the field and they, you know, wanted to, wanted to work on their photography skills. And then when we come back at the end of the day, I'm, like, all right, let's take a look at what you've got. <clears throat> and there was this one lady in particular, and she had like maybe 25, 30 photos. And I was like, oh, whoa. In my mind, I was expecting 2000, you know, for the time that we took out there. And I was one piece of advice I had for her afterwards. I said, just press that button, try things, just take photos you don't think are going to work. Try zooming in, zooming out, tighter tights, wider wides, um, you know, kneel down, take photos, hundreds of them, hundreds of them, throw them away. It's okay. You're going to find by practicing and, and taking thousands of photos that you're going to, you're going to come away with some that you never expected to, uh, to like might be your favorite ones, but if you don't try, you're never going to know. And so she's like, yeah, that's true. And I was like, I expected you to come back with a couple thousand photos today. And there's like 25 or 30. And she's like, oh, really? I guess I didn't even think about that. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. What's the harm? There's no harm. So take a lot of photos, a lot. And I'm sure, I don't even know if you could count how many you've taken, but I'm guessing it's hundreds of thousands probably, right? You're, you're going to, this is going to blow your mind. Um, I, I don't, I don't take that many. Um, really? Oh, okay. uh, yeah. Yeah. I know I'm going against, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think take as many as you can. And some days I, I kick myself cause I didn't, you know, I didn't push the shutter enough. Um, I think it, for me, it depends on the day. Am I, am I hunting this season in particular, right? I've, I've focused more on hunting, especially going with my wife. And like you said, wanting her to, uh, sure. to finally connect on a bird. And, and I focus more on the hunting than the photography as much, um, when I'm out there just for myself. And so I've taken a little bit less. The other thing is, as any photographer knows, um, the more you take, the more you got to edit, which is, which can be good and bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but absolutely. I think take as many as you can take as many in the moment. And when you see something that you like, take as many in that moment, that's, that would probably be my biggest advice. If you, if something catches your eye or something, um, resonates with you while you're out there, if you know, whether it gives you any sort of, any sort of feeling that feels good, or you really like the way that looks, pull your camera up, take the photo, take a bunch in that moment. And, and you're going to land on one there. So I wouldn't say, I, I would say calculate, do it calculated when you're taking a lot of photos, 
if you were just to hold it, hold a camera at your chest and just hold that shutter all day, I don't think you're going to be happy with what you end up with. And it's going to end up taking a lot of your time. But in those moments that something really hits you and something that, you know, you really enjoy, I say, push, push that shutter finger, get down in different positions, find different ways to, to capture that. Because if it makes you feel good there and you start capturing it, one of those photos is going to capture at least part of what you were feeling in that moment. And that's ultimately what you're trying to do is tell that story with that photo. So in, in those moments, I say, yeah, definitely take as many as you can. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. I think the last thing I would add to that too, and you maybe uh, would agree, but you, you might find yourself appreciating some of your photos um, in hard to reach places. Like you, you get off the beaten path and get out there and find those great places. And at certain times of the day when it might be painful to wake up at 4 a.m., but you're watching sunrise and the and the the colors in the sky and just your photos pop versus a midday shot or you know a lot of people love the sunset photos too. But where you're at, finding those places and being willing to have your gear there ready at those times when the skies and the colors are just indescribable. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest thing is if you're going, if you're going out and you're going to be in those cool places, have your gear with you because you don't know how it's going to end up as far as that's concerned. And yes, being able to wake up early and get those sunrises that, that early, you know, those golden hours, right. Morning and at night are great, great for lighting. Um, Harsh lighting is always, always hard to edit afterwards, but you can with the right settings. Um, And, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to see what you come up with in all of those. And I think as you start shooting, you figure out where, where you're, where you're comfortable at as far as lighting to shoot. And then the other thing is it, when you're doing stuff like lifestyle in the field photography, you don't get to choose the light. So you have to work with what you got. So don't be afraid to uh, take the photos anyway and see what you come up with. Very good advice. Very good advice. Uh, Nate, I appreciate you taking some time today. Um, I'm glad that you followed your dream out there and it's been a lot of fun watching it too. I'm glad that you share it with us. Um, and the advice you gave today has, has been really good. Uh, if, if anybody has questions for you, I assume it's okay for them to reach out to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Reach out. Love to talk to everybody about anything and, and, uh, hopefully I can make some new connections along the way. That sounds good. Well, keep up the good work. Um, we are out of time today. I will be back next week. We've got more information about Pheasant Fest coming up. I want to share that with you. So quite a bit of information there. If you're looking to watch some, uh, some bird hunting right now and you need a fix, you can head to our YouTube channel. New episodes come out every week. We're still posting new ones from our current season. And then before you know it, We will have new episodes airing again on the Outdoor Channel. We're working on them right now. We've got mountains, we've got prairies, we've got forests, we've got oceans. We got everything this year. Well, not everything, but we're trying. We're trying to keep uh, a mixed bag of birds and keep you entertained and educated, uh, just like we're trying to do on the podcast here. So hope you'll join us next week. I'm Travis Frank, reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field.